Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Mark Thomas. Mark is an Associate Professor of Cardiology in the Institute of Cardiovascular Sciences at the University of Birmingham, and he's an Honorary Consultant Cardiologist at University Hospitals Birmingham. Mark completed his undergraduate medical degree at the University of Nottingham and went on to complete a PhD at the University of Sheffield, where his thesis was titled The Effect of Antiplatelet Medications on Innate Immune Activation. Mark was awarded an MRC Clinical Research Training Fellowship and then an NIHR clinical lectureship and has expertise in lab science, clinical research and of course looking after patients. A primary focus is on the pharmacological management of coronary artery disease. To this end, he has strong interest in data science, artificial intelligence and machine learning and this is one of the reasons that I wanted to get him on the show. Mark is a delight and I really hope you enjoy listening. Okay, welcome to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Mark Thomas, who's an Associate Professor in Cardiology here at the University of Birmingham. And this is the second time we're recording this start of the podcast because uh, Muggins here forgot to press play uh, on the recording. So apologies, or, Mark. Or record, um, or maybe that was the yeah, problem. Yeah, record, but, play, which one of those? Yeah. <laughs> that was the issue. Um, never mind. We're going to make exactly the same jokes and it'll all be uh, perfect this time. So, um, right, welcome, Mark. Okay, well, thanks, thanks again. Yeah, no, it's it's great to uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I haven't really done any podcasts before, so we'll see how this all goes. I'm liking you a bit more relaxed now. So it's uh, you know we've had 20 minutes of breaking you in. With <laughs> yeah, no well, I say I haven't done any podcasts. I guess I did a 15 minute one earlier. Yeah. Just now, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so your training, so you're a doctor, you're a consultant cardiologist now, and. Again, looking around the room, we've got a jacket here, which is apparently the stamp, the rubber stamp of being a consultant. That's right, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Day one, yeah. You've Need got to f- get it. In fact, I can see a few few jackets around the room. And, <laughs> yeah. and even a tie as well. So well yeah. done. And when do you get to wear the bow tie? Uh, I think that's that's probably professor, isn't it, I think, yeah. to do it properly. Yeah, definitely. Right, so we're going to talk about your career briefly. So you uh, went to medical school in Nottingham, and then what was what happened after that? Yeah, so yeah, I did um, all of my junior doctor training and things all in Nottingham. So I did my foundation programme, and then I did my core medical training all around Nottingham. And then um, I took a clinical research fellow job with um, Prof Rob Story in Sheffield and um, he's kind of a world leading expert in antiplatelet drugs so I kind of really wanted to move uh, over there to work with him and then uh, whilst I was there after a few months I uh, applied for an MRC clinical research training fellowship and I got that and then spent the next uh, three years um, doing a PhD there all about how antiplatelet drugs affect the immune response and see whether that might be part of part of the reason for their clinical benefit 
And then I, after my PhD, I then moved to Birmingham as a, a clinical lecturer. Um, so I spent half of my time um, training as a cardiology registrar and then half of my time uh, doing research and kind of building up my own research group and then just in the last um, well September I then moved to associate professor of cardiology uh, position here at the University of Birmingham. That's brilliant I've met you I think back in 2016 something when we were working at City Hospital which has got a great cardiology department I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think I remember meeting you and you, you've been very impressed about your sort of talk about evidence and evidence base and it was really enlightening and that one of the one of the reasons why it sort of spurred me into academia so thanks was it, yeah. um yeah um the phd you said was on immune uh, the immune effects of antiplatelet drugs just tell me a bit more about that yeah so um that was all um that came out of the plato clinical trial so plato was a, the study where um they investigated whether ticagrelor reduced the risk of further cardiovascular events compared to clopidogrel in patients who had acute coronary syndrome. So that study, I think, was uh, around 2009, so it's just a few years after that. We were then looking to see some of the reasons why ticagrelor seemed to have this all-cause mortality benefit. So it didn't seem to just reduce the amount of MIs, heart attacks after. It also seemed to reduce the risk of all-cause mortality and possibly also pulmonary infections. So it sort of implied that maybe ticagrelor had some effects on the immune system. So we wanted to kind of look into that, see what the reasons for that were, and then see, you know, potentially whether we could develop new drugs that also kind of made use of that same mechanism. Uh, what did you find? What was the mechanism? So platelet P2I12 inhibitors um, uh, reduce platelet leukocyte interactions. And um, so actually the MRC fellowship is quite unusual um, in that we actually looked to see how the drugs affected the immune response of healthy volunteers. So we were actually... Uh, the first centre in the UK to inject healthy volunteers with intravenous E. coli endotoxin. So we, we used that as a model of systemic inflammation to look see how the drugs affected the systemic inflammation. So uh, healthy volunteers, um, who were mostly medical students actually, they developed uh, sort of a fever and um, felt unwell for a, a, about well, most of a day, um, <laughs> and then uh, they fell back to normal uh, kind of by the next day. And we could see, actually, that both clopidogrel and ticagrelor both reduced systemic inflammation, so they both reduced um, IL-6 and uh, TNF-alpha. Um, and uh, the more potent the P2I12 inhibitor, the more inhibition of that you got, basically. Okay. It's a curious mechanism, isn't it? Because obviously inflammation is something that's evolutionarily conserved over many, many years. Um, and IL-6 and TNF-alpha have got both sort of, sort of dirty words, really. They all have these deleterious effects in humans in you know, COVID and rheumatoid arthritis and things. And I find it curious how, how the, in, in disease they seem to always be doing something bad. Do you worry about a sort of... I mean, in, in that study, for example, you, you're blocking a pathway that's potentially protective so is, is, is that what you found really was the reason for this all-cause mortality drop 
Yeah, well, it's it's difficult to know actually, and yeah. I think um, that so the platelet P two I twelve inhibitors do have this effect on systemic inflammation, but it's always very difficult to tease out uh, how much of their clinical benefit is to do with that and how much is to do with thrombosis. I think the majority of their effect is to do with uh, anti platelet effects. Okay. So I think maybe a small part is to do with uh, their effects on systemic inflammation and. Um, Again, like inflammation is very complicated, isn't it? I guess thrombosis, in a way, is a, a easy field because all thrombosis pretty much is bad. Yeah. Like obviously, kind of um, hemostasis is good, but thrombosis, you know, blood clot inside a blood vessel is generally speaking pretty much always bad. Yeah. Um, so it's quite easy. We just try and prevent that. So we don't have to think about it too much more than just trying to prevent it. Inflammation is really difficult, isn't it? Because you can't really say what's good, what's bad. Yeah. You know, is pro-inflammatory good what is pro-inflammatory is anti-inflammatory good is it bad or it's very different it's yeah. very context and what kind of anti-inflammatory is good and bad yeah, yeah you're right you're yeah right. no i think it's it's very very complicated and in, in when it comes to the heart and inflammation um on the one hand you want to kind of reduce um neutrophil infiltration into the heart and you know deleterious effects on the actual myocardial infarct at the time um, but then on the other hand you want to preserve some of the repair mechanisms that are going on as well and you know if you just very broadly inhibit inflammation in that context you might say inhibit neutral migration into the heart but you might also um, prevent repair of the heart you might and that could lead to cardiac yeah. rupture and things like that so it's it's yeah it's very difficult I think yeah you mentioned some antiplatelet drugs like their sweeties, so ticagrelor, clopidogrel. <laughs> uh, we didn't mention prasugrel, but aspirin is the other one. That, that these are the, the four sort of major drugs that are used day to day in patients around the world. Obviously, there are others. Um, I mean, what's what's the rationale for those drugs? Clearly, they're all easy to give. And what's the problem with with them? So your 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 career is being dedicated to developing and, and looking for new antiplatelet drugs. What's what's the hope? What's the what's the point? Yeah, so I you know I agree those are all sort of very good drugs. So obviously as the decades have gone on, we've had aspirin, um, which really sort of started all the interest in antiplatelet therapy and MI, and then uh, we had clopidogrel, and that's now largely been replaced by. Um, Tacaglor and Prasugrel for acute coronary syndromes and actually the most recent evidence suggested that possibly Prasugrel is better than uh, Tacaglor even for acute coronary syndromes but difficult to, to interpret all of, uh, it's, that's on the basis of the ISAR REACT 5 study, difficult study to interpret but you know we know we know that both Tacaglor and Prasugrel are both very effective drugs um, and in a way, you know, as a researcher in this area, it makes it a little bit difficult if your existing drugs are actually very good because you want to find new things to do and new things to kind of improve on what we're already doing. But if actually what we're already doing is pretty good, it makes it more and more difficult to kind of find the unmet clinical need. But I think I think we do still have a, f a couple of areas in... Um, uh, in coronary artery disease where we still have an unmet need um, to do with antithrombotic drugs. Um, I would say one is, uh, so when a patient comes in with an ST elevation MI, so that a STEMI, a big heart attack, where you have a generally a full sort of blockage of one of the coronary arteries, um, 
those patients have have that unblocked with percutaneous coronary intervention and one of the main things now is that you have a wire passed through that and it you get kind of a shower of emboli of um of kind of clot and atherosclerotic plaque and platelets leukocytes all goes sort of downstream and actually that can block the little micro vessels and you get more thrombus form inside these little micro vessels and um so we need uh, we kind of need better drugs to inhibit that because um, we've seen that really aspirin and platelet P2I12 inhibitors don't seem very effective at pre- preventing that process. And um, we do have drugs like GP2B3A inhibitors, which might help more with that process. So that's things like eptafibatide integ- or Integralin is the other name. And um, um, but. The problem with those drugs is they cause a lot of bleeding and means we can't use them routinely. So we need drugs that have um, more of an effect on preventing thrombosis, particularly microvascular thrombosis in STEMI, but less of an effect on hemostasis than GP2B3 inhibitors. So who currently gets those GP2B3A inhibitors? Yeah, so at the moment, because of the kind of quite dramatic effects they have on hemostasis, we just reserve those for maybe about... 10-15% of patients with STEMI who uh, have a lot of clot in one of their coronary arteries they then will use um, TB3 inhibitors sometimes. Is there some kind of criteria for that or is it sort of the, the, um, the operator's feeling? Operator's feeling and all, to be honest all the guideline recommendations related to that area it's all based on expert opinion yeah. and it's there's no clinical trials even actually to say in that setting that GP2B3 inhibitors right. are better sort of largely kind of anecdotal yeah. and just the feeling that you, there's a lot of clot there so you should give something that will help um, but okay. yeah largely anecdotal that area and the idea that this downstream the downstream crud the shower yeah. that comes out is 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 bad is that is that again expert opinion or is that evidence based no so we got pre- we got up? pretty good evidence for that so um uh, if you do a routine cardiac mri on every single patient who has a STEMI, you will actually see that in about 20% of patients, they have, um, you can actually see these sort of small areas where they don't have blood flow because they've got microvascular thrombosis. So you can see that like, the main coronary arteries are clear, but, um, and they might even look completely clear. But then when you look at a, you know the micro level, you've got so many different micro vessels that are blocked that you still get a pretty substantial area that's not getting any blood at all. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, patients who have that, um, about 20% of them will go on to have another heart attack or die within the next year. So it's a you know significant problem um, yeah. and one that we want to try and prevent. So curious finding that they will, if, the, if they've got that downstream thrombosis, they're more likely to have another MI. Presumably that's not related to the downstream quad that's gone off. That must be, it's a... It's a sort of indicative of something else going on somewhere else is that um well i suppose i wouldn't say although i kind of used yeah i said it is one thing together I, it, it's mostly mediated by kind of things related to heart failure right, and okay. arrhythmias and things like that you know if you've got a scarred you're ultimately going to end up with more scar on your myocardium if you have um microvascular obstruction you'll get more scar potentially then in that area and then that's you know, more likely to cause mechanical kind of complications, yeah. more likely to cause heart failure, more likely to cause arrhythmia. So it would be mostly those things rather than increase okay. in MI. I guess I was using the term just to kind of all-encompassing okay. major adverse cardiovascular okay. event type of term. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, 
clearly there's this unmet need then. So what are we doing about it? So actually in, in Birmingham, we, we've got quite a nice translational story that we, uh, we fortunately have um, Prof Steve Watson, he's a BHF professor, he's been working on GP6, pretty much kind of discovered most of the things to do with GP6 over the last 20 years or so. And um, uh, we now have... Um, we're working on a, a clinical trial that should start early next year to look at whether a novel GP6 inhibitor um, reduces uh, microvascular obstruction and then um, infarct size in patients with ST elevation MI. Okay. Um, so involved recruiting 200 patients split between uh, Birmingham and Sheffield um, over the next couple of years. So very sort of excited to be doing this this kind of yeah fin- helping to finish off this translational story and you know hopefully moving things into the um clinical area where we can then use all of this science to benefit patients what's gp6 so gp6 is a uh receptor on platelets so um it's it's the first receptor really that kind of causes well, one of the first receptors that causes very potent platelet activation. So when you get atherosclerotic plaque rupture, um, you get exposure of collagen and um, the platelets become activated by the collagen and um, uh, that sort of triggers aggregation, that um, triggers sort of firm adhesion, triggers um, kind of all of the downstream consequences of platelet activation. And also um, what makes GP6 quite appealing as a target um, is that it uh, has this role in um, platelet activation in response to fibrin. So when when the coagulation system gets activated, you get production of fibrin. And then that fibrin activates platelets by GP6 and um, you get this kind of amplification mechanism potentially so again Steve Watson kind of demonstrated this a few years ago and that that was actually one of the key things that that made me think we should really look at targeting GP6 in acute coronary syndromes in fact that that was just before I moved to Birmingham was one of the reasons I moved to Birmingham (laughs) because of his work in that area Uh, is one of the reasons I was kind of convinced it would be a good target but GP6 also and another reason for why we're thinking about target well why we're going to target um gp6 is because it has uh, very little role in hemostasis and what we can see so it has this really nice kind of balance of really important role in thrombosis but very minor role in hemostasis okay clearly the holy grail then going forwards is to develop these drugs that don't make people bleed so they, they target the thrombosis and 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 prevent you know, or, or don't aren't associated with a severe bleeding phenotype like the GPTB3A antagonist. Do you think that's something that's achievable? Are you, re- are you very hopeful that GP6 will be that drug? Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, that's very much the holy grail, and it's kind of what um, the field has aspired to for a long time. Really, is to kind of find something with this sort of really uh, beneficial balance uh, between thrombosis and hemostasis. I think GP6 has a, a is of all of the targets so far appears to have one of the best balances. Um, so we there's not that many um, people in the world with a GP6 deficiency, and I guess looking at pay, uh, looking at individuals with um, GP6 deficiency is probably one of the most useful ways to try and get a feel for its role in hemostasis. And I think there's only uh, there's less than 20 or so um, people in the world um, who've been identified to have a GP6 deficiency. And um, most of those in Birmingham, again, um, 
uh, Steve Watson has, has led that research. Um, and um, there he goes. <laughs> yeah, just walking past. Um, and uh, it it's always kind of a bit biased in how it's picked up because uh, people have some form of kind of bleeding. Um, uh, problem or they have bruising or something like that that leads to them having some sort of detailed platelet function test and then um, you know they discover that they have a GP6 deficiency but it generally seems to be quite mild and um, uh, it's probably to do with this biased way it's picked up because there must be thousands of people in Chile who also have the same genetic mm. um, deficiency who don't get you know who we who are sort of um, they're not the tip of the iceberg they're yeah. kind of below the surface and um uh also it's pretty clear that gp6 deficiency has a much um lower effect on hemostasis than a gp2b3n uh, deficiency like glantzman's thrombocenia it definitely doesn't seem to be in that in that okay. league uh, so I, I guess one of the problems with these drugs currently the gp6 inhibitors uh, these are monoclonal antibodies so given intravenously um, so you can't use those as sort of a long-term prevention. So I guess they're not going to replace things like clopidogrel. But you're thinking they're, they're going to replace the GPT-B3A inhibitors potentially in the acute situation. Is that is that where you? Yeah, d- exactly. Yeah, I mean that's that's one issue we have with GP6 is that, like you say, there's only two drugs that have made it to clinical trials really so far, or made it at least to phase two clinical trials, mm-hmm. and those are um, uh, glenzosimab and Revercept both of which are intravenous only so yeah like you say you can only really give them uh, during a hospital admission but we're also very interested and have done um, uh, quite a bit of work recently around looking at BTK inhibitors and SICK inhibitors so um, uh, these are BTK and SICK are both downstream of GP6 in the sort of signaling cascade so the difference with BTK and SICK inhibitors is they can be given orally so um and they're used at the moment in kind of various different hematological settings mostly. But um, because those can be given um, orally, it means you could give them long term. So um, we've looked to see whether um, BTK inhibitors and SICK inhibitors block atherosclerotic plaque-induced platelet response. And they actually seem, um, you know, BTK inhibitors more than SICK inhibitors, but you do definitely see inhibition of those responses with those drugs as well. And that's good because we do have another unmet need in, in cardiology, so in kind of coronary artery disease, I would say, for antithrombotic therapy. So at the moment, you get, generally speaking, um, a year of dual antiplatelet therapy after you have an acute coronary syndrome. And then... Um, in some cases, you might continue it, but it tends to be relatively few t- cases you continue some form of dual antithrombotic therapy. And that's because um, in studies of prolonged dual antithrombotic therapy, for most people, the um, the effects on bleeding, causing major bleeding, outweigh the benefits of, um, of continuing it. So, or at least you kind of have to do this very personalised weighing up the pros and cons. So we could, again, do with some drug that has good antithrombotic effects, say as good as a PTY12 inhibitor, but doesn't have effects on hemostasis. So then we could just give it to everybody after an acute coronary syndrome. We could keep it going long-term as dual antiplatelet therapy for every single patient rather than just a kind of subset of them at the moment. So that's potentially where kind of newer um, drug treatments come in as well. While we've been talking, my, my thought where the unmet need would be prevention. Because clearly cardiovascular disease is a massive burden worldwide. Um, 
I know you've thought about, sort of worked on artificial intelligence modeling and things for, but just tell me a bit more about that because um, you can see it like, to the sort of the layperson. I'll include me in this because I'm not a cardiologist. The layperson, you can see maybe artificial intelligence approaches would be really helpful to identify healthy people who are maybe at more risk of having cardiovascular disease is that is that something that that's needed because we always already have risk scoring systems you know framing them and whatnot it, it, do you think ai holds some promise to try and identify people sooner and prevent these catastrophic events and then may not even even need these drugs or even we can give them these drugs before they have an event yeah so i mean uh uh, yeah, I definitely have a major interest now in artificial intelligence and machine learning, and it's it's an area I kind of increasingly want to explore more and more. I think it has a lot of potential advantages. Um, I think some of the major areas, like you say, are risk prediction, um, also helping to personalise treatment as well. So if you can identify particular subgroups of patients who would benefit from a certain drug or might be harmed by a certain drug, I think that's really useful. And um, but also, I guess at the same time, so don't get me wrong, I definitely feel that this is kind of the future of um, medicine in general. But also, I think we have to not put too much hype on it that actually a lot of, say, in risk prediction, for example, generally speaking now, machine learning models are kind of generally beating sort of standard statistical models and okay. standard scores. But they're, they're not necessarily uh, kind of... Um, a whole different league of performance to what we can already do but I, I think we're iteratively improving these over time and uh, I think things will only get better. Can you explain to me the difference between artificial intelligence, machine learning and neural networks? Uh, yep I can, <laughs> I can try so um, uh, I guess um, so uh, maybe I'll start with machine learning in a way um, so Machine learning is all about kind of developing algorithms that um, that can kind of learn from data. So you don't have to tell, you don't have to kind of pre-program the algorithm exactly what it's going to do in every single setting. Um, it will look through the data essentially, and it will kind of work out patterns and it will find those patterns by itself. It doesn't have to be pre-programmed with the patterns. Um, that's sort of a very, very brief uh, okay. kind of summary of machine learning. I guess artificial intelligence is a very broad term that I guess is not clearly defined that um, that includes machine learning. Um, and a lot of people use those terms AI and machine learning interchangeably. Um, but yeah, AI is just a slightly broader term, I suppose, that would probably also include like... Um, sort of automated um, approaches to medicine as well and things like that. So you can kind of do automation, and I'm very interested in automation, but you can kind of do automation without using machine learning. Um, and I guess both would probably be counted as AI. And then I guess to complicate things further, there's another term that kind of seems to be more and more popular now, which is AGI, which is Artificial General Intelligence. Okay. So that's more about kind of... I guess now everything's got AI in it, hasn't it? Like probably your fridge has got AI in it or something. So like now the AGI is more like what we always used to think of as being AI, which is you kind of almost like your robots that yeah. will, you know, talk to you and things. So that's kind of AGI yeah. now, artificial general intelligence. It's scary in many ways because as a as a relatively well-educated person, I feel completely left behind with AI because it's just not my area. I feel like there's a, there's a, there's a tiny proportion of people worldwide who get it, 
and they're having a major influence on the future of humanity. Is that? <laughs> I mean, how do we? How do you? How do general sort of medics and scientists and things get into this? Because it's clearly going to be a big part of the of the world going forward. Do we? Do I need? Do I need to go and understand this now? Is that something that I should should be actively looking to do? Or am I, you know, should I just stay doing Western blots in the lab? <laughs> and if I, if I did want to get into thinking about that and 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 trying to learn how to, you know, program and, and these sorts of things, where would I where would I start? Yeah, I guess a few things to kind yeah. of break down there. Um, I suppose starting with kind of the importance of knowing about this stuff. Um, I think it's probably important everybody knows a bit from a high level perspective about kind of what machine learning is and how it just the very basic essentials of what it does. So there's certain concepts that are really useful to kind of understand, which are things like um, just thinking off the top of my head, but things like cross validation as an approach to kind of being able to generalize um, the performance of a, an algorithm. Um, um yeah i think kind of things like cross validation probably everybody should should have a bit of an understanding of what that means kind of training sets test sets knowing these kind of terminologies is very very useful um again understanding maybe the difference between like a tree based algorithm which are quite common and um difference you know what just the essentials of what a neural network is i think you asked actually what a neural network is and um uh, that actually all comes down to um, simple statistics in the uh, kind of right at the core of it because it's actually all logistic regression so um, okay. uh, it's kind of logistic regression built up on itself lots and lots of times okay. so you have kind of lots and lots a bit like synapses in a brain which are you know yes no type of um, yeah. you know binary sort of uh, input output um, similarly um well, it's not binary actually. You can have multiple inputs and one out, you know, but then one output. Similarly, neural networks are kind of just built up with lots and lots of logistic regressions all on top of each other. Right. Then all of these different logistic regressions all have kind of different weightings put on them, and you can then kind of go back and tweak the different weightings that are put on all of the different logistic regressions to kind of optimize your algorithm. So, but yeah, I think kind of just knowing the very basics of this, I, I guess unless you're actually going to actively work in this area, there's yeah. probably not much need to know more than than that. Um, yeah. Where would you go just to learn those basics? Are there any good books or podcasts or videos or? Um, so I, I actually think there's a really great podcast called uh, Lex Fridman podcast. So I've okay. been listening to this now for about. Uh, six months or so and um, I think he's been doing it for a few years so he's an MIT based uh, AI researcher and he um, he has loads of really good interviews with really big people in AI so he's had like Elon Musk um, he's had uh, Demis Hassabis he's the CEO of DeepMind he's had um, uh, Travis Oilifant he made like a lot of stuff to do with Python uh, he's had some like very very big people um but he keeps it, I think, quite uh, quite a good level of quite general interest. But also, if you are a programmer, he's got a lot of like interesting stuff okay. to do with programming as well. Okay. 
brilliant. I'll uh, I'll check it out. Yeah. But I'd encourage everyone to listen to this podcast. First. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. And, and and your specific interest in AI. Why did you learn? Because this is all post PhD, wasn't it? You sort of well, no. I think I was actually um, just one of these kind of quirks of life uh, where. During my PhD, I um, I lived in Birmingham because uh, my wife lives in Birmingham, and I travelled up Sheffield every day on the train and um, train there and back. So it's about two two and a half hours on the train every day. So I actually learn um, all of this on the train, really. So I guess to start with, I tried like a bit of Netflix and things, and then got very bored of sitting watching like, the buffering yeah. thing. It's not don't don't recommend <laughs> that. Well, it's probably better now actually five G and stuff, but. Um, then I started doing courses, so on websites from edX, uh, edX.org and Coursera.org about kind of the basics of computer science. I did ones from MIT about kind of the foundations of computer science and then about data science from Johns Hopkins and um, did ones from Stanford about statistical and machine learning and things like that. So um, uh, kind of some of the most well-spent time I think I've ever had in my life yeah. probably on the train like that I think I did over a thousand hours of these different wow. courses were they all free uh mostly yeah these so these are all like uh MOOCs so these massively oh, online yeah. courses and um at the time because this was back in 2014 ish 2015 2016 this they were fairly new back then and you would pay maybe like 30 pounds for 200 hours of content um whereas now i think they are more expensive but still they're 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 not kind of prohibitively expensive it's not like doing a master somewhere and you've got to pay 20 thousand pounds for it it's more like you might have to pay 100 pounds or something like that okay so what are you doing with this uh, with this essentially degree level computer science <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah it's been really good in the last year or so um, uh, making use of some of this now so um, uh, particularly kind of a lot of programming in Python so I, I kind of had this idea a couple of years ago um, that things are getting really complicated now to work out all of these different anti-thrombotic drugs I mean we've already talked about aspirin, ticagrelor, prasugrel, clopidogrel, and then you've got all the different NOACs, so apixaban, dabigatran, nidoxaban, rivaroxaban. You know, you think how many different combinations of different drugs you could kind of create out of just those. And then you've also got all the different statins. You've got, you know, now in coronary artery disease, we've got SGLT2 inhibitors, PCSK9 inhibitors, all the different heart failure drugs. And that's not even before you start controlling someone's blood pressure or their depression or this, that, and the other. This polypharmacy idea is a real problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really complicated now, and it's what I sort of subspecialise in as a area is kind of pharmacology of coronary artery disease. And you know, there's literally um, hundreds of millions of possible combinations of all of these different mm-hmm. drugs, and it it's becoming increasingly complicated over time so I figured because I'd done a bit of programming I suppose it all seemed quite algorithmic to me you know if if blood pressure is over 140 or whatever you should start ramipril or something it all just seemed very like you could kind of program this quite easily yeah just de- determining what to do so um I did actually kind of put together a funding proposal for an application related to that a while ago and then that all got put on hold because of covid um so then kind of later on in the covid 
pandemic, I um, I guess I just thought I'd just have a go at programming myself anyway in my free time, and um, turned out to be actually really complicated. So I thought thought, thought initially it'd be very easy. Um, thought I could do it in like a few hundred line script in Python or R or something like that. Yeah, sounds really easy. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, it turned out there's just yeah you take for granted all of the different things we as clinicians do when we kind of look at the different numbers and um, you know when you've actually got to program a computer to sort of very specifically do all of the individual things we do it really makes you appreciate how many different hundreds of kind of operations and calculations your brain is doing just looking at something simple like the blood pressure and what yeah. drug you should start you're actually running through hundreds of different things that all have to be specifically programmed to, to do um, but yeah that that project's um, uh, been by far one of the most interesting projects I've ever worked on and we've we've um, now that what I've created all kind of take routinely collected patient data and it will work out the optimal treatment strategy for that patient so wow. it will choose from um, over 40 different medications and then it will kind of work out the optimal combination of those and um, uh, based on kind of guideline recommendations so it will all be c- compliant with um, either NICE or ESC European Society of Cardiology guidelines and um, uh, that potentially has the why I'm kind of really excited about that project is it has the potential to scale so I guess like GP6 inhibitors you know they have the potential to be good in STEMI they have the potential to be good uh, potentially for other patients with coronary artery disease but possibly some other conditions but you know not every patient ever is going to have a GP6 inhibitor whereas with kind of personalizing medical treatments for patients and kind of doing it in this sort of optimal ideal way um, I think we can genuinely reduce patients risk of having serious cardiac problems and you know dying as well because a lot of the drugs that we can kind of optimize it definitely reduce all cause mortality so but it, at the moment that's just you know talking about cardiology but actually that approach can be scaled to majority of areas of medicine yeah. so that really is a kind of scalable um, scalable project and also um, uh, at the moment there are you know I, like I say I specialise in the pharmacology of all of this but I'm one of the only people in the whole area whole of the Midlands who does kind of specialise specifically in kind of coronary artery disease pharmacology whereas if you can write a programme if I can replace myself with a programme yeah. then you know you can scale that out so that can be applied a lot more um, a lot more sort of widely That's amazing Will you be collecting outcome data are you randomizing people to this sort of algorithmic approach versus standard of care yeah so at the moment this project's very much in the kind of early days of of sort of building things up but yeah i mean ultimately the the kind of um i feel the way to um develop these these types of projects further is to do clinical trials to see if you can improve use of medications in patients and then you know the step after that would be then if you can improve use of medications does that reduce outcomes and then um the step after that is to then get nice approval you know you can show your software actually reduces the risk of uh, say or cause mortality yep. or major ca- adverse cardiovascular events so then to get a nice approval would be the ultimate goal of that type of project does that need regulatory approval isn't it so yeah. fda ma yeah so mhra yeah you need um uh, so for software to be used as a medical device it's a 
sort of constantly evolving, yeah. rapidly developing area. Where actually, fortunately, Birmingham. So Birmingham not only is it kind of. Uh, got a lot of expertise in platelets very fortunately Birmingham also has a lot of expertise in digital health and um, uh, say somebody like Prof Alistair Denniston at, uh, um, based in Birmingham he does a lot of the work for, related to regulation of AI in healthcare and um, so yeah you need generally speaking for these types of things you need MHRA um, um, well it's actually called a letter of no objection but it's right. essentially approval um, and uh, yeah you need um, the equivalent of a CE mark which now oh. post Brexit is called UKCA um, not a CE mark anymore Brilliant Mark this has been such a fascinating discussion I'm glad I actually snared you to do this after having badgered you for probably for about six months and I'm sorry that we had to record the start twice but I think the <laughs> second time round was much better <laughs> Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, maybe we can talk again about um, the AI stuff um, when it's sort of up and running a bit more and I'll be really intrigued to know where your career goes. Okay, well, no, thanks very much. No, it's really good to have the opportunity to uh, go through everything. Thank you. Pleasure. See you next time. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.